Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I was a 24-year-old woman, half Cherokee from Georgia, when this eerie incident occurred. My fiancé and I lived on a sprawling farm in Maryland, even though we didn't make much use of the land itself. We rented a small house on the property, granting us the freedom to explore the vast grounds at will. At the time, I was only 19, and the sole residents of our cozy cottage were my fiancé, our cat, and our loyal pit bull. Our cat was a bit of a lunatic a barn cat I had rescued because I couldn't resist helping animals in need. Our pit bull, on the other hand, was a sweet, cuddly, albeit easily spooked, 75-pound dog who was afraid of her own shadow. Our farm was nestled on approximately 20 acres of land, and our driveway stretched nearly half a mile, ensuring we were far from any other people, except for our landlord. The first part of our journey home involved traversing about a mile through open farmland, followed by a brief stretch of forest, and then roughly half a mile through tall wheat fields before finally entering the solid forest for another couple of miles. Now that you have an idea of the lay of the land, let's delve into the eerie encounter. It all began like any other typical weekday evening. My fiancé and I returned home from our respective jobs to our comfortable cottage, eagerly greeted by our frantic dog, Harley, who was desperate for her evening walk. I changed into my walking attire and asked my fiancé to join me, but he declined, mentioning a sighting of a coyote near our house and suggesting it might not be a good idea tonight. Coyotes, as you may know, are primarily scavengers, especially on the East Coast, so I wasn't too concerned. Plus, I was more than capable of defending myself. I jokingly called him a puss, and told Harley that we would be just fine without him. With a chuckle, I left the cottage, embarking on our walk. Harley and I headed down the long driveway as we usually did. The sun was setting, casting a chill October air around us, rustling the tall corn stalks that flanked our driveway. At this point in the year, the corn had grown to about six feet tall, making it impossible to see through. I figured my fiancé was probably just trying to scare me since there was no way he could have seen a coyote in this field. Harley relished her time tearing through the cornstalks, and I knew that despite her cowardly nature, she would quickly alert me to any danger. By the time we reached the end of the driveway, the sun had disappeared, and the moon shone high above the fields, providing just enough light to forego the use of my flashlight or Harley's collar light. We turned left onto the road and ventured into the first section of the field, which was planted with soybeans. These were relatively short plants, and other than a few deer in the distance, there was nothing alarming to be seen. We relaxed and enjoyed our stroll through the cool evening air, playing fetch with a stick as we went along. As we approached the first small section of trees, Harley suddenly stopped and nudged my leg, signaling that something was amiss. It wasn't a coyote or a deer. Instead, it was a rabbit that had been struck by a passing car and was struggling to survive. Reluctantly, I knelt down and used my knife to end its suffering, adhering to the lessons my family had taught me. I felt a mix of sadness and relief, suspecting that the wounded rabbit might have attracted the coyotes. With heavy hearts, we continued our walk, passing into the next field. 
which was filled with wheat ready for harvest. The wheat was tall, making visibility challenging, but the area was quiet, and Harley seemed calm. I assumed the coyotes had moved on, if they had even been there in the first place. And now, on to the chilling part you've been waiting for. We rounded the corner of the field, with wheat on our left and a dense forest on our right. The air suddenly grew still, as if it had gone stale. Harley moved closer to me, and I heard rustling in the wheat field. I spotted three tails circling back towards the forest. Coyotes, I thought. Eastern coyotes are relatively small individually, but in a pack, they can become more daring. Harley raised her hackles, and I shouted, Get out of here! Go on, bugger off! As loudly as I could, the coyotes scattered into the trees, and I decided to turn around and head back, not wanting to risk walking into a dark forest with a pack of coyotes and a skittish pit bull. As we turned to leave, I heard rustling in the weed again, but this time Harley was standing perfectly still, fixated on the grain. I whistled for her to come to me, using that high-pitched, ear-piercing two-fingered whistle that usually snapped her out of any trance. To my surprise, my whistle was returned from somewhere inside the wheat. It sounded very human, but not quite right. Against my better judgment, I mumbled something, though I can't recall exactly what I said. To my astonishment, my words were echoed back to me. The creepy silence was punctuated only by our breathing, and then the rustling began anew. Fueled by fear and curiosity, I turned on my flashlight, shining it across the wheat field. In the eerie glow, I spotted a pair of animal eyes, green with a yellowish hue in their reflection. But the eyes weren't connected to what I expected. Instead, a sight that defied all logic greeted me. A young girl, no older than fourteen or sixteen, crouched amidst the wheat. She appeared to be wearing deerskin or fur, as she was otherwise naked. Her thin, pallid form seemed as if it had never seen sunlight, and her tangled hair was adorned with wheat and leaves. Under different circumstances, I might have called her beautiful, but at that moment she was nothing short of terrifying. We locked eyes, and seconds stretched into minutes. The tension hung in the air until the unmistakable howl of a coyote erupted from the forest. Both of us snapped our heads toward the sound simultaneously, and without warning, the girl bolted through the wheat toward the noise. Harley instinctively took off towards our home, and I followed closely behind. We didn't stop running until we reached the safety of the driveway, where I halted, not wanting my fiancé to know that I was fleeing from something. The distant howling persisted as we continued our brisk pace back towards the cottage. We finally reached the safety of our cottage without any further incidents, and I chose not to share the harrowing encounter with my fiancé. I couldn't bear the thought of him going out there with a gun. The girl had not harmed me, and I didn't feel it was right to hunt her. In the middle of the night a few weeks later, I was awakened by the eerie sound of coyotes howling near our cottage. It was unusual, and I couldn't help but wonder if that mysterious girl was among them. As time passed, I started to put that unsettling night behind me, even entertaining the idea that I had imagined the whole encounter. But then, about a month later, while driving home from work, something made me slam on the brakes. In the darkness of the road, a pair of eyes reflecting green and yellow met mine in the headlights. It was a large coyote, and for a brief moment our gazes locked. 
Then it swiftly darted into the woods. I know it sounds insane, but I can't help but wonder if that coyote was her, the enigmatic girl from that night in the wheat field. I live right next to a Navajo reservation, and over time, I've formed close bonds with many of the people there who are my age. We spend our days like ordinary teenagers, hanging out, playing games, and sharing stories. One of my best friends lives less than a mile away from my house, making it a short 30-minute walk. I've made this trip countless times, and it's become a familiar routine. I know the faces and the places along the way, so there's usually no fear or unease. However, there's a patch of forest about halfway to my friend's house that has always been a little unnerving. It's strange because every time I enter that part of the woods, there's an eerie sensation of being watched. At first, I tried to brush it off as my mind playing tricks on me, but it happened so frequently that it became impossible to ignore. One day, I ended up spending more time at my friend's house than I had intended, and by the time I left, the sun had already dipped below the horizon, casting long shadows. I reached the dreaded stretch of forest, just as the last traces of daylight disappeared. A shiver ran down my spine as I prepared to venture into the darkness. Around 10 to 15 steps into the forest, the silence was shattered by the unmistakable sound of a tree branch snapping. It was the type of sound that instantly alerts you to the presence of someone or something nearby. My heart raced, and I was paralyzed with fear, unsure of the best course of action. Should I run? Should I turn and sprint back to my friend's house? Panic gnawed at me. In a trembling voice I whispered, Hello? My voice cracked as the word escaped my lips, and I couldn't fathom why I had spoken. But there it was, hanging in the air. I strained my ears, desperate for any response. My heart sank when a distorted version of my own voice echoed back, mimicking my greeting. Hello. My breath quickened and my heart threatened to burst from my chest. I felt a surge of dizziness wash over me. Hello? I stammered again, but this time the voice did not come from my own mouth. It was as if someone or something else was using my voice. It echoed around me seemingly from all directions. Hello, hello, hello. I tried to stop it, to regain control over my own voice, but I couldn't. The repeated hello surrounded me, trapping me in a nightmarish echo chamber. The forest, once filled with the sounds of nature, had fallen eerily silent, devoid of its usual chorus of bugs, frogs, and crickets. I stood there, terror gripping me, waiting for what would happen next. Then it mimicked back my voice once more. I had reached my breaking point. Summoning every ounce of strength, I forced my legs to move, and I began to flee. But just as I did, a rustling in the bushes to my left stopped me dead in my tracks. I watched in horror as a deer head with colossal antlers emerged from the foliage. It stood on two legs, a grotesque and unnatural sight. Without a second thought, I sprinted out of those woods, setting a personal record for my journey home. When I finally reached my house, I said nothing to my mother. I went straight to my room and lay down, replaying the chilling encounter in my mind. My mother entered at some point, asking if everything was okay. I replied with a half-hearted yes, 
not daring to reveal the terrifying events of that evening. I couldn't bring myself to tell her. Perhaps I feared how she would react. Instead, I picked up the phone and called my friend, recounting the harrowing experience in every detail. He reacted with alarm, urging me to remain vigilant and not respond to whatever was out there. He advised me to call him the following day, promising to explain more and mentioning that he needed to speak to his grandfather urgently. That night, I couldn't sleep. I lay awake, listening to every creak and rustle, my mind haunted by the echoes of hello. Sometime around 3 a.m., the atmosphere shifted. The night sounds dwindled to in scary silence and my heart began to race. I lay there, pulling the covers over my head like a frightened child, unable to move. Then it came, after a seemingly endless silence, that chilling voice. Hello. It was all I could manage to say. But this time, it responded by mocking the very word I had uttered in the woods. It called my name, Amy. In the haunting voice of my mother, it beckoned me, Amy, come here. The same phrases repeated relentlessly throughout the night, driving me to the brink of insanity. Morning finally broke, and the torment ceased as the sun's rays pierced through the darkness. Exhausted and sleep-deprived, I fell into a fitful slumber. When I woke up around midday, my friend called and told me he had spoken to his grandfather, who explained that I was dealing with creatures known as flesh gates, or possibly a skinwalker. These beings were evil witches who used dark magic to transform into animals and other entities. It seemed that one of these creatures had caught my scent and had become fixated on me. It was now attached to me, like a curse I couldn't escape. My friend warned me that it would always follow me, and I would have to be constantly vigilant. That night, the nightmare continued. Scratching noises on my window, a low, ominous hum, and the relentless repetition of my name in my mother's voice tormented me. It desperately tried to lure me outside or convince me to open the door, but I clung to my sanity, refusing to give in. Now I feel like I'm going insane. I don't know what to do. Will it forever lurk in the shadows stalking me? The thought is unbearable, and I fear that I may never find peace again. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Back in October of 2020, I worked as a kennel technician at my local animal shelter. My job was to clean up after the animals feed them, and ensure they had access to fresh water. Each week, two co-workers were paired together and sent to clean the different animal rooms in the shelter. This week, it was my turn to clean the outdoor kennels, and I was joined by my friend, whom I'll call R. As we prepared to start our duties, I asked R, Which side do you want, the one facing the wooded area, or the one facing the parking lot? I already knew the answer. The side near the parking lot, R replied. The wooded side gives me the creeps. I chuckled and said, I know, just figured I'd ask anyway. We went our separate ways, each armed with cleaning supplies to begin our tasks. I started by opening the doggy door to let all the dogs into the indoor part of the kennels and then closed it behind them. 
Next, I began collecting toys and water buckets from the kennels. However, as I worked, an eerie feeling washed over me, as though someone or something was watching me. I turned around quickly, but there was nothing there. I think R's ghost stories about this place are getting to me, I mumbled to myself. I grabbed my water hose and began washing out the kennels, but the unsettling sensation of being watched persisted. Eventually, I turned off the hose and set it down, realizing that everything had gone eerily quiet. Even the dogs that usually filled the air with their barking had fallen silent. Being from the south, I knew that the sudden silence of the woods signaled the presence of a dangerous predator nearby. I looked up towards the woods, and my heart skipped a beat. There, peeking out from behind a tree, was a creature that defied all logic. It stood at least eight feet tall, and its odor was a repugnant mix of wet garbage and rotting food. The creature was shockingly thin, its skin stretched tautly over its skeletal frame. Its eyes glowed with a malevolent yellow light, seething with anger and hatred. Fear coursed through my veins, and every fiber of my being urged me to run, but I found myself paralyzed, unable to will my legs to move. For what felt like an eternity, I locked eyes with this grotesque being, engaged in a chilling stare-off. It was only when I heard R's terrified scream that I snapped out of my trance-like state. Without thinking, we both turned and bolted towards the safety of the shelter. Inside, we stopped to catch our breath, and R, still trembling, looked at me. I noticed you had gotten quiet and went to check to make sure you were all right, she stammered. Relieved that R had intervened, I replied, I'm glad you did. I don't even want to think about what would have happened if you hadn't. We both understood that we would have to explain to our boss why we hadn't finished cleaning the kennels, but we also knew that if we told her the truth, she would think we were crazy. So we decided to claim that a bear had been lingering dangerously close to the shelter. Our boss quickly switched our duties with the two men cleaning the cat rooms, unaware of the true terror we had encountered that day. However, the bizarre events were far from over. In the days following our encounter with the creature, three dogs from the outdoor kennels mysteriously disappeared. These kennels were designed to be escape-proof, and what was even stranger was that there were no paw prints to be found. Instead, there were strange deer prints leading from the woods to the kennels. We couldn't help but wonder, was this creature a skinwalker? Had it stolen those dogs? And most haunting of all, what would have happened if R hadn't decided to check on me that day? Would I still be here, or would I have become another victim of the enigmatic and malevolent entity lurking in the woods? The sky over our small town stretched wide and unblemished, the kind of big Montana sky that made you feel both insignificant and free. Amy and I had settled here for that very reason, the open spaces, the quiet streets. Our house, a modest two-bedroom with a red door, stood as a testament to our simple, uncluttered life. I loved the way the evening sun cast long shadows across our front yard, the way the air smelled of pine and distant wood smoke. I was sitting on the porch, a cold beer in hand, when the news broke. The television in our living room hummed quietly, the voice of the news anchor, sharp and urgent, slicing through the stillness of the evening. 
a security malfunction at the nearby Deer Ridge Correctional Facility, he was saying, has led to a mass escape of inmates. His tone was grave, eyes piercing through the screen, as if delivering a personal warning. Amy joined me on the porch, her brow creased with worry. Do you think we should leave? She asked, her voice barely above a whisper. I could see the fear in her eyes, the unspoken what-ifs hanging between us. I pondered for a moment, watching the sun dip lower in the sky. We'll be fine, I said, more to reassure myself than her. They'll round them up soon enough. It was the kind of blind optimism that had always guided me, the belief that things would work out because they usually did. Over the next couple of days, the town transformed. The usual bustle slowed to a crawl. People stayed indoors, eyeing each other with suspicion. Amy and I decided to follow suit, stockpiling canned goods and bottled water, boarding up the windows. It was surreal, like preparing for a storm that might never come. But in the back of my mind, a small voice whispered warnings. We spent the evenings huddled in the living room, listening to the police scanners and the occasional update from the news. The list of escapees was a roll call of the desperate and dangerous. I tried to hide my concern, but Amy was more perceptive than she let on. As night fell, a sense of unease settled over the house. The boarded windows cast deep shadows, and every creak and groan of the old structure seemed amplified. Amy and I sat in silence, lost in our own thoughts. The reality of our situation hung heavy in the air. Seventeen men, unpredictable and possibly violent, had vanished into the wilderness. And our town, by sheer proximity, had become the center of a manhunt. The news anchor's dramatic voice echoed in my mind as I double-checked the locks on the doors. Stay indoors, stay vigilant, he had said. It was advice we intended to follow, but as I lay in bed that night, listening to the wind whistle through the cracks in the window frames, a deep, unsettled feeling took root in my gut. It was the kind of feeling that said trouble was closer than you thought, the kind of feeling I had learned to trust over the years. And when the first unfamiliar voices drifted through the night air, mingling with the rustle of leaves and the distant hoot of an owl, I knew our decision to stay had been more than just optimistic. It had been a gamble. And as the sounds outside grew closer, I couldn't help but wonder if we had just lost. The night air was thick with tension, the kind that makes your skin crawl and sets your nerves on edge. Amy and I sat in the darkened living room, the only light coming from the dim glow of the scanner, casting eerie shadows on the walls. Every sound seemed amplified, the silence between us heavy with unspoken fears. It started with a rustling outside like footsteps crunching on dry leaves. I held my breath, listening intently. The house, usually a haven, felt like a trap now, each creak and groan a potential harbinger of doom. Did you hear that? Amy's voice was a whisper, her hand gripping mine tightly. I nodded, my eyes fixed on the shadowy window. Stay here, I said, my voice barely audible as I moved cautiously towards the door. In that moment, I remembered a line from an old western I'd watched as a kid. Courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. Funny how things like that come back to you. I peered through the peephole, but saw nothing but darkness. The rustling had stopped, replaced by a suffocating silence. 
I turned back to Amy, about to suggest it was nothing, when a sudden crash shattered the stillness. It sounded like it came from the back of the house. Without a word, we both knew what to do. We had discussed a hiding spot when we first moved in, half-jokingly, never thinking we'd actually use it. The crawl space beneath the floor was cramped and dusty, but it was hidden and hopefully safe. We moved quickly, silently, lifting the carpet in the living room to reveal the small hatch. As I pried it open with trembling hands, I could hear the sound of our front door being forced, the wood splintering under brute force. Amy climbed into the crawl space first, her face pale in the dim light. I followed, pulling the hatch closed behind us, the darkness enveloping us like a suffocating blanket. We lay there, our breaths shallow, listening to the chaos unfolding above. Footsteps thundered across our living room, heavy and erratic. Voices, rough and menacing, echoed through the floorboards. I could feel Amy's body tense next to mine, her fear palpable. The intruders moved through the house with purpose, their presence an invasive violation of our sanctuary. I heard them rummaging through our belongings, the sound of breaking glass and the occasional curse. It was surreal, listening to strangers destroy the life we had built, powerless to stop them. The worst part was not knowing, not knowing who they were, what they wanted, or how long they would be there. Every second felt like an eternity, each noise a potential precursor to discovery and violence. As the night dragged on, the initial shock gave way to a numbing terror. Lying in the dark, hidden yet exposed, Amy and I clung to each other, our world reduced to the small, claustrophobic space that was both our sanctuary and our prison. The reality of our situation was stark and brutal. We were at the mercy of escaped convicts, our home no longer our own, our fate uncertain. And as the night wore on, with the sounds of destruction and menace just feet above us, I realized that fear was not just an emotion, it was a living, breathing entity, and it had taken up residence in the very heart of our home. The darkness in the crawl space was suffocating, a tangible presence that seemed to press down on us. Amy's hand was cold in mine, her grip tight with fear. We lay there, motionless, barely daring to breathe as the sounds of the intruders echoed through the floorboards above us. It was a nightmarish symphony of footsteps, muffled voices, and the occasional clatter of our belongings being tossed aside. Time lost meaning in that cramped darkness. Every second stretched out, laden with dread. The floor above us creaked under the weight of the intruders, a constant reminder of the danger just inches away. I kept replaying our decision to stay, wondering if our defiance of logic and reason had brought us to this end. Then, the inevitable happened. The sound of footsteps approached the spot where we hid, a slow, deliberate pace that set my heart racing. I could almost feel the presence of the smoking man and his accomplice, Samuel, as they hovered above us. The floorboards groaned under their weight, a mocking chorus to our silent prayers. In that moment, I thought of every decision that had led us here, of the life Amy and I had built, and the future we had planned. It all seemed so distant now, like a dream fading upon waking. Fear had a way of stripping everything down to the raw, primal need to survive. Just as the dread became almost unbearable, something inexplicable happened. 
A light, bright and blinding, flooded the crawl space. It was like nothing I had ever seen. A pure white light that seemed to come from nowhere and everywhere at once. I heard a commotion above, shouts of surprise and fear. The light was disorienting, casting strange shadows and making it impossible to see clearly. But it brought with it a sense of surreal calm, a momentary respite from the terror. The light persisted, and in its glow, I felt a strange sense of detachment from the situation. It was as if we were observers, removed from the danger that had been so imminent. The sounds from above grew distant, muffled, as though the light had created a barrier between us and the intruders. Then, as suddenly as it had appeared, the light was gone, leaving us in darkness once more. But the atmosphere had changed. The house was silent. The oppressive presence of the men above seemingly vanished. Amy and I stayed in the crawl space, not daring to move, not knowing if the danger had truly passed, or if this was just a brief lull in the storm. The silence stretched on, a stark contrast to the chaos that had reigned moments before. Eventually, exhaustion overtook fear, and I felt myself slipping into a fitful, uneasy sleep, Amy's hand still clutched in mine. The night's events felt surreal, a nightmare that had intruded upon reality, leaving us adrift in its wake. As I drifted off, I wondered if we would wake to find our world unchanged, or if the nightmare would continue with the dawn. But in that moment, trapped between fear and exhaustion, the future was a distant concern. All that mattered was the here and now, the darkness, and the faint steady pulse of Amy's hand in mine. Dawn broke with a hesitant light filtering through the cracks of our boarded windows. The night's terror seemed to recede with the shadows, leaving behind a heavy silence. Amy and I emerged from the crawl space, stiff and disoriented, the events of the night hanging over us like a bad dream. The house was eerily quiet, a stark contrast to the chaos of the night before. We moved through the rooms, the normalcy of our home a bizarre contradiction to our frayed nerves. Everything was as we had left it, no sign of the intrusion that had turned our sanctuary into a house of horrors. The sound of sirens in the distance brought a rush of relief. We were no longer alone, no longer left to fend for ourselves in the aftermath of the inexplicable events. The police arrived in a flurry of activity, their questions a barrage that we struggled to answer. We were hiding, I told them, my voice hoarse with fatigue. There were men in the house, they found us, but then there was this light. The officers exchanged skeptical glances as I recounted the story. Their doubt was a tangible thing, filling the room with an uncomfortable tension. Amy stood beside me, her face pale, her eyes haunted by the memories of the night. The police searched the house, their thoroughness a stark reminder of the seriousness of the situation. But they found nothing. No signs of forced entry, no evidence of the violence we had described. It was as if the night's events had been wiped clean, leaving no trace behind. You're sure you saw what you saw? One of the officers asked, his tone implying doubt. I nodded, frustration mounting. I know what we heard. I know what we saw. But there was nothing to corroborate our story. No footprints. No fingerprints. No broken windows. The house stood as a silent witness, offering no clues to the nightmare we had endured. As the police left, their skepticism lingered, 
a new weight added to the burden we already carried. The town, once a place of comfort and community, now felt isolating. The stares of our neighbors, a reminder of our unverifiable tale. Amy and I tried to piece together what had happened to make sense of the senseless. But the more we talked, the more the details seemed to slip away, like trying to hold on to water. The bright light, the sudden silence, the absence of any evidence, it all defied explanation. The following days were a blur of confusion and disbelief. Friends and family offered support, but their concern was often tinged with doubt. Whispered conversations and sideways glances followed us in the streets. Our credibility questioned, our sanity a topic of hushed speculation. We clung to each other, the only two people who knew the truth of that night. But even our shared experience was not immune to the corrosive effects of doubt. Questions gnawed at us, the what-ifs and the maybes, eroding the certainty we once held. As I lay in bed each night, the darkness a familiar presence, I wondered if we would ever find answers, or if the mystery of that night would remain, a haunting enigma forever etched in our minds. The terror had passed, but its echoes lingered, a haunting melody that played on in the quiet moments, a reminder of the night when our world had turned upside down. Days turned into weeks, and the autumn leaves began their slow, inevitable descent to the ground. The world moved on, but for Amy and me, time seemed to stand still, trapped in the shadow of that fateful night. We tried to reclaim the rhythm of our old lives, but the melody was off, the notes discordant. Our house, once a haven of love and laughter, now felt like a stage where a sinister play had unfolded. I found myself staring at the floorboards, half expecting them to creak under unseen feet, the memories of that night lurking just beneath the surface. We talked about it, over and over, turning the events around in our heads like puzzle pieces that refused to fit. The lack of evidence, the incredulous looks from the police, the whispered doubts of our friends. It all compounded into a heavy silence that hung between us. I took to wandering the streets of our small town, the crisp air a small comfort against the turmoil within. The townsfolk, once friendly and open, now offered cautious smiles their eyes holding questions they were too polite to ask. The rumors and theories had spread, the story of our delusion, a topic of hushed conversation. One evening, as the sun dipped below the horizon, casting long shadows on the pavement, I ran into Sheriff Holden. He stopped me with a tilt of his hat, his eyes kind but wary. Everything all right? He asked, his voice tinged with an unspoken question. I nodded, the words catching in my throat. Just trying to make sense of it all, I admitted. He looked at me for a long moment, his gaze thoughtful. Sometimes, there's no sense to be made, he said, his voice low. Sometimes, things happen that are beyond our understanding. I pondered his words as I walked home, the sheriff's tacit acknowledgement a small balm to my weary soul. It was a recognition of the unknown, a concession that not everything could be explained away by logic and evidence. Amy and I found solace in each other, our shared experience a bond that no one else could understand. We spent nights talking, speculating on what might have happened, on what the light could have been. But there were no answers, only more questions. Gradually, we began to accept the ambiguity of it all. 
The human mind craves closure, a neat ending to every story. But life isn't a neatly scripted narrative. It's a series of events, some explainable, some forever shrouded in mystery. As the seasons changed and the first snowflakes began to fall, blanketing the world in a pristine white, we found a new sense of peace. The memories of that night would always be there, lurking in the back of our minds. But we chose to look forward, to embrace the unknown with a sense of wonder rather than fear. In the end, we realize that some things are beyond our control, beyond our comprehension. And that's okay. Life is a tapestry of experiences, some bright and clear, others dark and obscure. It's the not knowing that makes the journey worthwhile, the uncertainty that gives life its flavor. And so, we move on, together, into the future, whatever it may hold, carrying with us the memories of a night that changed us forever, a night that reminded us of the fragile, enigmatic nature of existence. I've recently found an incredible product that's helped me get my morning started and boosted my productivity. As a caffeine enthusiast, I used to depend on various energy drinks and coffee to get me through the day. But now, I've added something new to my daily routine that's not only convenient and easy to carry around, but also seamlessly fits into my lifestyle. This product has quickly become my go-to for a quick energy boost, and is now an essential part of my everyday routine because of its ease of use. What I love about it is that it tastes great and has significantly lessened my need for caffeine. Since I started using Magic Mind regularly, it has become an essential part of my morning. It's been a game changer for me, especially in terms of improving my mental clarity and focus. I've noticed a reduction in stress and anxiety, which has been a huge help in managing my ADHD. It's also improved my sleep quality and memory retention. Magic Mind is remarkable for its high-quality, all-natural ingredients, sourced from the best places. It's incredibly versatile, being sugar-free, nut-free, vegan, keto, and paleo-friendly, making it suitable for a wide range of dietary preferences. A standout ingredient, organic matcha, boosts energy and contains 130 times the antioxidants of regular green tea. The product is not just about enhancing productivity. It's also beneficial due to L-theanine, which naturally reduces the body's stress response. Sharing Magic Mind with my friends, particularly those who are big on coffee, has been a great experience. It's played a significant role in helping us cut down on our coffee consumption. You can now find it in all Sprouts Farmers Market stores across the country. If you have a Sprouts store nearby, get down there and grab a few bottles to try. After you're hooked, you can get a subscription with up to 50% off at www.magicmind.com forward slash just creepy with my code just creepy 20. I can still feel the chills running down my spine when I think back to that terrifying experience, the one that has made me vow never to go hiking alone again. The memory haunts me, and it's as vivid as if it happened yesterday. It all began when I was dating a guy named Brian. We'd been together for about six months and shared a love for outdoor adventures. Hiking, kayaking, exploring the wilderness. It was our thing. One sunny Saturday morning, we decided to explore a new state park, a place neither of us had been before, located about 40 minutes outside the city. 
We got a late start that day and didn't arrive at the park until close to noon. The weather was perfect, with the sun casting its warm glow over the landscape. We stopped by the small park office to grab a trail map, where the ranger enthusiastically highlighted a supposedly amazing six-mile loop that led to a breathtaking waterfall overlook. With our boots laced and hydration packs secured, Brian and I set off on the adventure. We were in high spirits, chatting away and admiring the beauty of the natural world around us. The trail began wide and well-marked, but gradually it started to climb uphill. After about 45 minutes of hiking, we reached an unexpected fork in the path that didn't match anything on the map. We deliberated on which direction to take, and eventually Brian suggested going left, since we could faintly hear the sound of rushing water in that direction, which we assumed was the waterfall we were so eager to see. As we continued on the left path, it became narrower and less maintained, with thick foliage closing in on either side, obscuring our view. About twenty minutes later, I started to feel uneasy. I couldn't shake the feeling that we had chosen the wrong direction. When I voiced my concerns, Brian brushed them aside, reassuring me that we were on the right track and that we might even stumble upon something better than the waterfall. Suddenly, the woods around us became incredibly dense, and we pushed through thick vegetation for several minutes. When I finally emerged from the tangle of greenery into a clearing, my heart sank. Brian was nowhere to be seen. I called out for him, but there was no response. It was inexplicable. Just moments ago, he had been right beside me. I began to retrace my steps, growing more anxious with each passing second. How could he have disappeared so quickly? Ahead, the trail forked again, and neither branch looked familiar. I called Brian's name again, but my voice echoed back at me in an eerie silence. I chose one of the paths, selecting it blindly, just hoping to find my way back to the main trail. However, as I continued to walk for several minutes, the surroundings became less and less recognizable. That's when the fear began to set in. The realization that I was genuinely lost and utterly alone in the wilderness. The day was wearing on, and the sun was slowly descending through the dense canopy of trees. I desperately searched for any trail markers or intersections to help me regain my bearings. My heart pounded, and the dimming woods filled with strange and unsettling sounds. I could have sworn I heard footsteps crunching leaves some distance behind me at one point, but when I paused to listen, the sound abruptly ceased. Exhausted and out of water, I took a break, sitting on a fallen tree, my head in my hands, on the verge of tears. I had no idea where I was. Just then, a snapping twig jolted me upright, and my breath caught in my throat. I scanned the woods around me, my eyes wide with fear. Then I saw it, a silhouette of a tall, lone man, standing motionless among the trees, about a hundred feet behind me. Brian? I called out, but even as the words left my lips I knew it couldn't be him. The figure was too tall, and something about the shape didn't match Brian at all. Why would Brian ignore my calls? Panic surged through me, and I grabbed the biggest stick I could find, shouting, Stay away from me! The man didn't move. He just stood there, blending into the shadows, watching me with an eerie stillness. I had no idea who he was or what he wanted, but I wasn't willing to wait around and find out. Clutching my makeshift weapon, I took off running again. 
Every few yards I glanced back, but the man had vanished from sight. I ran until my lungs burned, finally collapsing in a small clearing. I was drenched in sweat and trembling with fear. I knew I couldn't keep wandering aimlessly in the darkening woods. As the sun sank lower, I tried to gather my thoughts and come up with a plan. Should I continue trying to find my way back, or should I attempt to make some kind of shelter for the night? I had no idea where the trail was, and I had no way of knowing if that man was still tracking me. One thing was clear. I needed to leave those woods immediately. Sitting there, alone as the shadows grew longer, I knew I had to keep moving. I took a deep breath, stood up, and looked around for any sign of which way to go. In the distance I thought I could hear the faint sound of traffic from a highway. If I could just follow that sound, it might lead me to a road, to people, to civilization. I started walking quickly toward the noise, praying that it wasn't just my imagination. My heart leapt with every snap of a twig and rustle in the brush. Was that strange man still tracking me? What did he want? I pressed on through the thickening darkness, the woods alive with sinister sounds. Screeching birds, skittering animals in the underbrush, creaking branches. I kept glancing behind me, but I saw nothing but endless trees. Finally, the distant traffic noise grew more distinct, and my spirits soared. I felt like I was close to escaping this nightmare. Just as I picked up my pace, a figure suddenly stepped out from behind a tree directly in my path, only about thirty feet ahead. I screamed as the tall silhouette blocked my way. It was that man, the same one I had seen before. Somehow he had caught up to me. As he took a step closer toward me, I could now see his features in the fading light, and they made my blood run cold. His face was horribly disfigured, with scarred and twisted flesh that looked like it had been burned and was shiny. He had stringy hair hanging over a cloudy eye, but his one good eye was fixed intensely on me as he approached. I froze gripping my stick weapon, debating whether to run or try to defend myself. The man's mouth, partly obscured by an unnatural bulge on his cheek, curled into a sinister grin. In a deep, raspy voice, he spoke. What's your hurry? Stay a while. His tone sent a wave of terror through me, and every instinct screamed at me to get away from this deformed threat. As the man closed the gap between us, I swung my stick at him with all my might. He lurched to the side to avoid it, then lunged toward me. Without thinking, I turned and sprinted away, weaving through trees and underbrush. I could hear the man crashing through the foliage behind me, letting out an awful, gurgling yell. He sounded enraged that I had slipped away. I pushed my aching legs as hard as they could go, but soon his heavy footsteps seemed to be gaining ground. I risked a glance back only to see the snarling, melted face even closer behind me. Suddenly, I broke through the trees into a clearing. Right there in front of me was a parking lot and a road filled with cars, the highway I had heard. An overwhelming relief washed over me at the sight of other people. I raced right into the lot toward a family who was packing up their vehicle. They looked startled as I ran up to them in a panic, gasping for air, trying to explain the dangerous man who was chasing me. The father and teenage son scanned the tree line, then quickly ushered me into their SUV, locking the doors. The son called 911 while the parents tried to calm me down and offered me some water. I could hardly speak. 
My hands were shaking uncontrollably as my panic slowly began to recede. We watched the woods for any sign of that man, waiting for the police to arrive. Soon, flashing lights cut through the dark parking lot as a patrol car pulled up. An officer came to the SUV, and I recounted what had happened through panicked sobs. She went to search the woods while her partner took my statement, but there was no trace of the terrifying man. The police drove me to the nearby station, where they pieced together that I had stumbled out of Ridgeview State Park and had wandered over seven miles from the main trailhead. A call went out to the park rangers, who eventually contacted Brian when he made it back to the parking area. He was a mess, having been just as lost and freaked out while wandering alone after we got separated. Reuniting with Brian at the station, he frantically apologized to me for insisting on continuing down the wrong path. When I told him about the disfigured man I had seen, he comforted me, assuring me that everything was all right now, but that chilling image, that face, still haunts my nightmares. I'll never know if that man was some deranged predator lurking in the woods, or just a realistic figment of my terrified mind. Either way, the ordeal left me with a lingering fear of trails and trees, a fear that closes in on me if I'm not right by someone's side. Wherever that place took me when I was lost, it's a nightmare I can never quite wake up from, always feeling that malicious presence just behind me in the shadows. Camping used to be one of my favorite family activities, getting out into nature, cooking over the fire, and telling stories under the stars. What's not to love? My wife Amy and I took our son Ryan camping every chance we got when he was growing up, but ever since what happened that weekend at the state park when Ryan was 14, I don't think I'll ever be able to enjoy it the same way again. It was early October, perfect weather for camping before it got too cold. We drove up to one of our favorite spots, Ridgeview State Park on a Friday afternoon. Our campsite was in a more secluded part of the park, surrounded by towering pines. After setting up the tent and getting a fire going, we cooked hot dogs for dinner. Ryan was excited. When the sun went down, I told him some spooky stories about monsters in the woods. He was at that age where scary stuff was thrilling rather than really frightening. Afterwards, we all turned in for the night, exhausted from the drive and the setup. The first night sleeping outdoors is always the best, so peaceful and quiet, tucked away in the tent. The next morning, we made pancakes over the fire for breakfast. As we ate, a park ranger came by to welcome us to the campgrounds. He was an older guy, wiry with a big mustache. After some friendly small talk, he told us to be sure to store all food properly at night as bears had been active lately. We assured him we had a bear-proof container that we always used when camping. After the ranger left, we headed out on a hike. Amy is a bird watcher, so she brought her binoculars and field guide to spot species. We saw kingfishers, robins, finches, and more over the next few hours. Ryan did complain a bit about being bored, but I could tell he was enjoying himself too. Back at our site in the late afternoon, we played card games and read magazines. As dusk fell, I noticed a man at the site across the road from us. He would glance over more and more frequently as the night wore on. He looked to be around my age, in his forties, kind of rough and grizzled. He was drinking a beer and smoking while poking aimlessly at his fire. 
I tried to shrug it off, but something about the way he was watching us creeped me out. I made sure to usher Ryan into the tent once it got dark so that he was out of view. Amy and I stayed by the fire until almost midnight, chatting and gazing at the stars before finally turning in. Sometime later, I awoke suddenly to noises outside the tent, twigs snapping, leaves rustling. I lay still, straining to identify these sounds. Next to me, Amy and Ryan remained fast asleep. More crunching footsteps, seemingly right near the tent wall. Adrenaline began to pump through me as my mind went to the worst possible scenarios. A rabid animal, a psycho killer, the creepy camper from earlier. Moving slowly as to not make much noise, I reached for my flashlight which was nearby. I flipped it on and swept the beam around the interior, nothing inside. The crunching footsteps continued, definitely circling just outside the nylon walls. Taking a deep breath, I unzipped the tent flap as quietly as I could. I stuck just my head out, prepared to face some wild animal snout to snout. But instead, the light revealed the man from the other site, now squatting just feet away, his back facing me. With the light at his back, the man whipped around suddenly. For a split second we locked eyes, my blinding flashlight beam illuminating his face. I saw this wild, glassy look in his eyes before he snarled like some animal and lunged for me. I fell backwards into the tent, screaming for Amy and Ryan to get out as the man scrambled to get through the tent entrance. Amy was awake instantly, grabbing Ryan and pushing past me out of the tent. I kicked wildly at the man, now halfway inside our tent, aiming for his face. My heel connected with his mouth, and I heard him cry out. Finally, I wriggled away, ripping open the tent and bursting outside. Amy and Ryan were already sprinting for the main site area. I grabbed my keys and a knife, slicing at the tent material as the man emerged from within. He came at me again, blood now dripping from his split lip. I managed to evade his grasp, then turned and ran after my fleeing family. We called for help, and within moments, other campers emerged from their tents. I yelled out that a man was trying to attack us and pointed to where he was. Now I saw him disappearing into the trees beyond our now-destroyed tent. The camp hosts called 911 while checking that we were all unharmed. The other campers searched the area, but found no sign of the attacker. The paramedics arrived shortly after, along with the police, who took our statements. We elected not to stay another night, instead driving to a nearby hotel where I could hardly sleep. We left the following day, even more exhausted, Amy and I both had been shaken to the core. That feeling of security camping had always given me was gone. Ryan, especially, was quiet on the drive home. He's 19 now but hasn't gone camping since then. And, to be honest, it took me quite a few years to feel comfortable camping again. Being out in the wilderness, once so peaceful, now seems full of unseen dangers lurking in the dark. Who knows who or what might end up at my tent door next time. The night had draped a heavy shroud of darkness over my home, casting long eerie shadows that danced on the walls. As I stirred from my slumber, a harmless thought crossed my mind. The pizza box was too big to fit in the fridge. It was a trivial concern. 
but it occupied my thoughts as I reached for the last sip of water on the nightstand beside my bed. The water was refreshingly cold, soothing my parched throat, but it left me wanting more. I couldn't ignore the persistent image of that obnoxious pizza box still sitting on the stove, a reminder of last night's indulgence. Carefully I rose from my bed, leaving my son, who had migrated to my wife's side during the night, sound asleep. He had taken refuge in her space, convinced he had seen a lurking monster in his room. My wife had sought solace in our son's room to escape my incessant snoring. These thoughts filled my mind as I approached the assortment of water glasses on the nightstand, placing tonight's refill among them. But my gaze was inevitably drawn to the kitchen, where the pizza box sat. I tiptoed across the dimly lit room and opened it stealthily, akin to a thief operating under the cover of night. My fingers snatched a slice, laden with sausage, and I intended to savor it briefly before returning to bed, along with another sip of water. However, as I took my first bite, a calamity unfolded. The toppings clung to the pizza slice for a mere moment before sliding off, leaving behind a bare, sauce-soaked and far less enticing piece of crust. Panic surged through me, and I hastily grabbed a paper towel to salvage what I could. I wiped my mouth, my heart pounding, and then took a moment to regain my composure. It was then that I saw it, standing eerily on the balcony. My body froze, my eyes locked onto the enigmatic figure. The blinds were partially open, providing just enough of a view. They had been remodeling the balconies recently, and there were enough planks in place to support something beyond the glass. A figure, seven feet tall, maybe eight, I couldn't be sure. Time seemed to blur as I stared at it, unable to tear my gaze away. My phone was in the bedroom, where it lay next to the growing collection of water glasses. If only I had it with me, I could call the police. But to do so, I'd have to avert my eyes from the grotesque entity on the balcony. It stood there, as though caught in the act, and I remembered how long it had been since we last used the sliding door, how long since we'd confirmed it was locked. My thoughts flickered to my son and my wife, both sleeping in rooms away from the living room, seeking refuge from the nighttime disturbances. I considered screaming, but the potential consequences silenced me. We would all be overwhelmed by fear if I did. Slowly I ventured toward the balcony, my steps deliberate, my trembling hand clutching the paper towel. The details of the figure became clearer the closer I got, or perhaps it was the lack of details that unnerved me most. Its long, spindly arms dangled awkwardly, a hunched back, and hair that hung in thin, ragged strands. It was almost December, and yet it wore no clothes. Why was it on my balcony? The figure seemed strangely pleased to see me, as if this encounter were a pleasant surprise. My heart raced, and I could feel the sweat collecting in my armpits. A paper towel was my only defense. No phone, no weapon. I stood there, locked in a staring contest with the nightmare creature. Desperate to break the silence, I managed to choke out a single question, my voice barely audible. What do you want? Though I couldn't hear its response, it understood my inquiry. Its face drooped, sagging skin conveying its thoughts. Its gaze shifted to my son's room, then to the bedroom where my wife lay. And finally, it locked eyes with me once more. 
In that moment, my lip trembled, and I mouthed the word, No. The figure took a deep breath and leaned against the outer frame of the sliding door. Its appearance grew increasingly unsettling the longer I stared. It seemed to inflate its chest and puff out its thin skin-covered bones, attempting to intimidate me. It opened its mouth to speak, producing no sound, but I understood its intentions. Its words chilled me to the core. I have all night. I thought of my wife and son, sleeping in their respective rooms. I considered the consequences of alerting them. It would only plunge us all into fear and uncertainty. Trembling, I moved to the balcony, my steps slow, my paper towel still clutched tightly. I dared not look away from the figure. It continued to mock me, sitting in an unnatural, dog-like or horse-like posture. I sat on the carpet, trying to project an air of indifference while hiding my terror. The creature appeared to be freezing, its thin skin clinging to its sharp bones. It was chilly in the living room, and I was only in my boxers, goosebumps forming on my skin. We locked eyes, both of us uncertain if there were rules to this bizarre encounter. Could I look away? Could I check if the door was locked? I wasn't sure if I could stop it. The thought of falling asleep or my family waking up sent shivers down my spine. So I sat there, staring at the figure, trapped in the suffocating silence of the living room. As time passed, the situation grew more unsettling. Sometimes, the creature pretended to fall asleep, toying with my emotions. But the worst part was when it allowed its facade to slip. Whatever illusion concealed its true form twitched, revealing something even more grotesque beneath. Sometimes, it showed me a flash of teeth and gore, like the aftermath of a hit-and-run accident. At other times, it pressed itself against the glass, its body contorting unnaturally as it attempted to frighten me. Occasionally, it transformed into a girl, her mouth frozen in a soundless scream, or it had no eyes at all. I continued to sit and watch, terrified to look away, afraid of provoking its impatience. The hours ticked away in agonizing slowness, and I had no idea when this nightmarish encounter had begun, or when it would end. The longer I stared, the more unsettling it became. Sometimes it would feign sleep, as if trying to lull me into a false sense of security. But beneath its skin, something hideous lurked. Then, just as the first rays of morning sunlight threatened to breach the room, the creature let out a deliberate sigh, signaling the end of its visit. It had run out of time. It offered a single nod, a chilling congratulations, and as it glanced at my son and wife in their respective rooms, its parting words sent a shiver down my spine. You got lucky this time. In an instant, it retreated, its limbs carrying it back into the dark woods, or whatever hell it had emerged from. My body ached, and I was drenched in sweat. I waited until the sun's gentle rays illuminated the room, the only reassurance that I might be safe. When I finally mustered the courage to move, I checked the sliding door. It hadn't been locked. After rectifying that oversight, I cautiously inspected the front door. Both the deadbolt and knob were secured, but it provided little comfort. I couldn't shake the feeling of unease. In my trembling hand, I still clutched the paper towel, nearly disintegrated from my grip. On the counter, the cold, bare piece of pizza sat. The exposed sauce a haunting reminder of the night's events. I disposed of both items in the trash. Silently, 
I tiptoed into my son's room and found my wife sleeping peacefully. Returning to my own bedroom, I discovered my son sprawled on my side of the bed. I downed a glass of water in one gulp, the cool liquid offering some solace. I placed the empty glass beside the others on the nightstand and slipped into bed beside my son, praying not to disturb him. I listened to his soft snores, wondering if it was even possible to return to sleep or if I would ever sleep soundly again. The events of the night had etched themselves into my memory, haunting me with the chilling realization that some horrors could not be easily forgotten.